Welcome, welcome to Kairos Time. Kairos Time. Welcome, everybody, to It's Kairos Time. It's Kairos Time. It's Kairos Time. Up over my head. Up over my head. I see freedom in the air. I see freedom in the air. Up over my head. Up over my head. I see freedom in the air. I see freedom. Up over my head, up over mm. my head. I see freedom in the air. I see freedom in the air. And I really do believe. I said I really do believe. Change is coming out there. Oh oh oh. 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 Always love hearing them singing. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight for our latest episode of It's Kairos Time, our first episode of the new year. And I can't think of a more timely topic of discussion for this evening, talking about Dr. King and his legacy. Um, so I want to open first with the mission statement of the Cairo Center and framing about It's Kairos Time. Uh, so first, the mission statement. Drawing on the power of religions and human rights, the Cairo Center works to raise up generations of religious and community leaders committed to the unity and organization of the poor as the leading social force and the building of a broad transformative movement to end poverty. We are a center for movement strategy, coordination, and education among the poor across all lines of division. Now for its Kairos time. A Kairos moment is a time when crisis and opportunity collide and the possibility for something new can emerge. When it comes to talking about Dr. King and his legacy, we have a rock star panel here tonight of folks that can really break it down and cut through the narrative and give us the truth and how we can move forward. So first, let me introduce Dr. Colleen Wessel McCoy, is an assistant professor of peace and justice at the Earl Hand School of Religion. She also directs the Masters in Peace and Social Transformation. Colleen's book, Freedom Church of the Poor, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign, lifts up King's 1968 convening of a multiracial leadership of the poor as a transforming force for moral and structural change that could end the themselves the inter intertwined evils of racism, poverty, and war. Her work in theological ethics is biblically centered and rooted in the growing leadership of the poor who refuse the evils of today. Also joining us tonight, we have Dr. Tajay Howard. She is a certified spiritual companion and owner of A Soul Vibe, an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Methodist Theological School in Ohio, and a teaching intern with Spiritual Guidance Training Institute. Her research includes Black Religious Intellectuals, Gender and Sexuality in U.S. History, African-American Music, and Race and Ethnicity Studies. Outside of spiritual direction and teaching, she is a senior editor of Black Perspectives, the award-winning blog of the African-American Intellectual History Society, and she is involved with the Freedom Church of the Poor, an initiative of the Cairo Center of Union Theological Seminary. And if you've been to these conversations before, you already know we always run out of time. So let's just jump straight into it. Dr. Tajay, I want to start with you. Um, so especially now, you know, with MLK Day just happening in this weekend, he is on a lot of our minds right now. Um, and especially uh, the elites and the powers that be, 
they'll oftentimes, you know, cherry pick and choose quotes and moments from his life and highlight those and not others to really control his narrative and, you know, push this image of him to us. And it's taught in the schools and everywhere. Um, many of us don't even know that Dr. King launched the Poor People's Campaign in 1967. Um, so let's just set the record straight, set the record straight for us. What are some moments of the people, um, the texts, and even the self-reflection over the course of King's life that really contributed to his political and ethical development, the honest political and ethical development that he had? Give us, some, give us a peek into his mind real quick. Wonderful. I love that question, Tony. Um, so I want to start out by just, just by saying that, you know, King was more than uh, nonviolence. Uh, he was more than... Uh, he didn't spend all of his time focusing on the race question. I think what's really beautiful once you get start to read King in his writing, um, particularly when you start to read ethical studies, um, and I'm thinking uh, before uh, uh, Dr. Colleen's work, uh, I'm thinking about Rufus Burrow and Lewis Baldwin, who did an excellent job of helping us to understand King as a personalist. And so basically King believed in the dignity and worth of all humankind. Um, and when we start to think about the poor people's campaign and we really see for the first time him moving from the issue of voting rights, which was pretty much um, uh, an issue impacting the African-American community, community, you see with his with his turn, his nod towards poverty, towards the war, we really start to see his personalist views come out. And, and what I mean when I say personalist, um, not only is he concerned, like I said earlier, with the dignity um, and worth of all human people, but he also believes in the idea of a very personal God who is involved in human personality. And King believed that we could be like God and be very involved with human beings in their particular situations. And we could find ourselves um, engaged in those things that are concerned uh, with, with a particular person at a particular time. And so, of course, we know, again, we can look at, you know, his voting rights activism, but also starting to think about when he starts to branch out, he's thinking about people who are living in poverty. In poverty, we know, knows no racial uh, category. It's, it's an issue across the board. So as he's really thinking about how do I engage with, with persons and make uh, conditions better for human beings. That image of making it personal, that we oftentimes like don't see that in how he's been doing this for a really long time. Um, now, Colleen, I want to bring you into the conversation to kind of building off of uh, Dr. Tajay's like insights here. Um, not only are we cherry picking the moments and, and quotes from his life, but even kind of like diluting King's analysis of the conditions that he was facing and advocating for um, a change to society at the time. Um, we know in Many of his like, especially later in like the famous speech, he's talking about how he's questioning how there, how can there be 40 million uh, poor people in America? And we're spending all this money on war and these different things. Um, we oftentimes don't hear that analysis. We often hear things from earlier in his life. Um, and it's especially alarming today to think about the explosion of poverty, how, you know, in 67, he's talking about 40 million. And today, our analysis with the poor people's campaign, we're looking at 
over 140 million poor people in this country, despite the exploding budgets that we have for other programs. Um, so building off of what Dr. Tajay was saying, um, how can we get a get a picture of what's going on in King's mind? How is he how is he analyzing the conditions of his time? Um, and even going a little bit further than that, uh, if he were alive today, how would he look at the crisis that we're currently living through? And how can we even like use his lens lens to look at like what we're dealing with right now? I love this question as well. And and one of the things I noticed about King's phrasing there is that he didn't just say, why are there 40 million poor people? But he asked why there were 40 million poor people in one of the richest countries in the world. And that relationship between poverty and wealth is important. Um, he said the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice couldn't be solved without a radical redistribution of economic and political power. And in one of the places where, where he talks about this 40 million poor people in the richest nations in, in the world, um, in 1967, he goes on to point out that a nation that will keep people enslaved for 244 years will thingify them, will make them things. And then therefore, he said they will exploit them and poor people economically. And a nation that will exploit economically will have to have foreign investments. And then it'll have to use its military might to protect those foreign investments. And he said all of these problems are tied together. And, and I really hear what Dr. Tajay is lifting up about King's personalism here around the thingification of human beings and this analysis of systemic racism and its relationship to the, econ the economy that human beings have been thingified and, and that they're in service of capitalism. Um, earlier that year, he had said that a revolution of values had to move from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. Um, so one, one thing I wanted to flag in thinking about the crisis of today and what we've learned from King. Um, so in 1968, I'll be right back. Thanks. Uh, in 1968, the official poverty measure said that 25 million people were poor. Still an astounding number. But, but when King says 40 million people were poor, uh, and some of the campaign documents, poor people's campaign documents in 68 put it at 70 million as being more accurate, they're talking about people who are in and near poverty, whose lives are shaped by material insecurity, and, and ass asserting that that official poverty threshold which was only a few, that measure was only a few years old at the time, was inadequate from the start. Um, it tried to hide the reality of how widespread poverty was in the richest nation in the world. So like the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, putting forward the 140 million poor and low wealth people, we're naming that breadth and depth of crisis. And we come together around that number and it breaks our isolation and it breaks our thingification. Uh, and I think that's really important, that that assessment of the conditions tied to our organizing um, and, and pulling in the intersectional character of the crises, like not letting racism be, be separated out from our understanding of economic exploitation. Um, and so King would, you know, talked about at that time, you know, what good does it do to have the right to sit at a lunch counter if you can't afford to buy a hamburger? And when he talked about at that in that period about there being numerically more poor white people than poor black here people, even even in that moment, he's talking about systemic racism and, and its relationship to poverty and class. And so I see similarities between the way 
that, that the policy work in the Poor People's Campaign today puts information in, in context of its relationships and insists that, you know, like we can't talk about the pandemic deaths apart from systemic racism and apart from, from inequality. And I see this kind of analysis King making in his own day, not just because it's correct, but because it makes it possible for us to organize, to have an assessment of the forces of society, of power, and to respond by finding our strengths and organizing our, our strengths, uh, developing leaders around that, including that there's 140 million of us. I love all of that that you guys are both saying. Um, and my next question is going to be about like tactics of division, uh, but even just especially elaborating on um, just the interlocking injustices, the same analysis that, that King had, you know, a lot of conversations today around him just focuses on race. Like, let's ignore some of his like comments and critique of the war complex. Let's ignore his economic analysis. Like, but seeing how all of these evils are interlocking and affect a large breadth of society and minimizing how how large the crisis is. Um, just saying it's just a small segment of the population. Um, not really seeing the large scope of how many of us are affected, not just black, but across all race, religion, gender, all of us are affected in this way um, and how we're all interconnected going back to the personalism piece. Um, Dr. Zizay, I would like to talk about um, some of these like tactics of division, especially that we're seeing uh, at his time and today, um, you know, a major objective of elites and, you know, the white Christian nationalist movement from then and even now is just to preserve the status quo by dividing us at all costs, um, especially those at the bottom, especially the 140 million or 40 million at his time. Um, and an ideology that Dr. King was committed to, as well as the Cairo Center and the Poor People's Campaign and National Call of Moral Revival today, is the power of fusion organizing and the power of social movements led by the poor. Um, now, Dr. King was not perfect, but how did he confront the strategy of division by the elites and the Christian nationalist movement? How did he how did he confront their strategy of division uh, in his work? And how might we even uh, model that in our own work today? I want to just rewind just a tad bit. And I know we're under a time constraint. But when I when I was listening to Dr. Colleen talk about, you know, King's analysis, I just it would be um I don't want the the the, the day to, or the the time to pass without mentioning people like Vincent Harding and Marion Wright Edelman, um, people that you know informed King's thinking about the poor. And so it's very important to uh, in in answering this next question to lift up King's conversation partners. And um, when I think about how did King um, move against one division within the movement. I, I want to lift up just his uh, embrace of young people like Stokely Carmichael, um, who um, gave us the phrase black power in, in June of 1966 during the Meredith March Against Fear. And King didn't understand Stokely. <laughs> um, it, but instead of writing, writing this younger faction of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee off, King did the work of sitting down with, with Stokely and other 
radical SNCC members and trying to understand. So one 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 thing that he did to push against division within the movement was that he sat down with with young people and he attempted to understand uh, what do they mean by black power? <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about as a philosophical political movement? Um, and, he, and he did the work of, of, of not pushing them away, but pulling them in. Uh, he did the work of, he didn't do an excellent job of protecting Bayard Rustin um, from anti, uh, uh, from, from homophobic slurs, um, but he, he kept people like Bayard Rustin and older uh, preachers like Vernon Johns in his inner circle, and he kept learning from them. These are people that, you know, uh, politically he should have shied away from, but he continued to have conversation with them. Um, he also did an excellent job of King was very international in his thinking, and we see that in his friendships with um, Thich Nhat Hanh and with Abraham um, Joshua Heschel. Um, he understood that what was happening in black and brown communities around the world, um, and even those you know, communities that were marginalized around the world um, had a lot to do with the situation in, in the US. And so he's constantly building um, relationships with people that in the spiritual direction world, we will say that King was very interfaith and also interspiritual. So he was building a relationship with people that would, uh, that would suggest that he did not see Christianity as the only way to deal with the situation, that there were uh, practices and rituals and other traditions that he embraced. And we know that through his, his friendships. I love all those comments and it, you know, speaks to Freedom Church of the Poor. We're talking about Colleen's book and the work that um, Kairos is doing now with the Freedom Church of the Poor project, you know, being an interfaith and interspiritual space, you know, to build this movement and realize, you know, just all of our ethics together can lift us out of this. Um, Colleen, I want to kick it back to you again. Um, thinking, you know, it's the day after MLK Day, this weekend, like a lot of folks are throwing quotes out there, participating in days of service and you know a lot of this pushed by the dominant narrative and in fact it has like lulled a lot of us to believe that that charity and philanthropy of the rich and you know poverty is is here to stay and we can only do a little bit to make things better um and a lot of that surrounds this day um despite all that we've heard tonight from you and dr tajay about um king's legacy and what what he actually saw could be um so during his lifetime, how did King challenge uh, this narrative that poverty is here to stay and we just need, you know, the goodwill of the rich to change things? How did he challenge that narrative? Um, and I mean, you've done so much research on it, so I really want to hear what you have to say just about like his involvement in other social movements uh, led by the poor. I, I think, um, Dr. Tijay, I appreciated the, the reference you made earlier to this sort of transition and the assessment that King had always assessing, um, you know, never, never stopping for long and, and, but then, but actually taking time to assess and drawing lots of thinking together and doing that assessment, uh, always thinking with others and always sort of not just resting on what had come before, but, you know, assessing what the next motion needed to be and where they needed to go, learning from mistakes, learning from losses. Um, and, and so 
So what? So in 1967, King was trying to win the staff to this idea of a campaign of the poor, trying to talk about a poor people's campaign, and people had different ideas about what they should do next. And um, and one of the things he says at a staff retreat is he says we've moved from an era of civil rights to the era of human rights. And talks, he says, I want to talk to you candidly about what this past period has been. And he says we were seeking to reform certain conditions in the house of our nation because the nation wasn't living up to the very rules of the house that it had prescribed in the constitution. He says, then after Selma and the voting rights bill, we moved into a new era, which must be an era of revolution. And he said, in that era of revolution, we are called to raise some questions about the house itself, not just calling the house to live up to its existing rules, um, but questions about the rules itself. and so this period that he's he's calling people towards the poor people's campaign and talking about the the triple evils of society of racism, poverty and war that wasn't just a list. It's not just a list of evils, but he's talking about how those systemic evils were enmeshed um at their roots from their core from the beginning. Um so the the multiracial character of the poor people's campaign as he's pulling pulling leaders together it wasn't it wasn't multiracial because it's some sort of post-racial reconciliation. It was multiracial and multi-ethnic because it was an attack on one of the weaknesses of white supremacy. That white, white supremacy is dependent on the idea of a false cross-class unity. Um, and so it wasn't that King thought poor white people weren't racist, but that they had been fed racism instead of food. And so he saw that Rich rights whites weren't anti-racist. They had just learned how to be polite about it in public. And so in the Poor People's Campaign, King went looking for people who were already organizing in their own communities, groupings like the National Welfare Rights Organization that had been organizing poor moms, mostly Black poor moms, but organizing across race lines, um, you know, who had started organizing, coming together, and then had built this national organization of 60,000 people by the time King approaches them to to take part in the poor people's campaign. But so he goes looking for folks who are already organizing from poor communities, poor leaders across the country. Um, And he brings them together in Atlanta in March of 1968. And this is just three weeks before he's assassinated. And he says, when he has folks gathered, he says, I've never been a part of a grouping like this before. And I think he hadn't because I don't think anybody had. I think this was actually a historically unprecedented gathering of poor organizers from across the country, across racial and ethnic lines. And what he says, he says, power for poor people will really mean having the ability, the togetherness, the assertiveness, and the aggressiveness to make the power structure of this nation say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. And this is, so this is who he thought would be willing to go there with him on the need for a revolutionary redistribution of political and economic power. And then he was shot. And so it wasn't just what he said, but it was who he said it with. And so I see more and more people talking about the king that nobody talks about. And we pull out any number of passages from across King's life that are radical. But what makes King's radical rhetoric revolutionary is that he wasn't just speaking truth to power and seeing how the powerful react to it. 
He was organizing a new and unsettling force of poor people, building power to make revolutionary ideas real. And when we do the same, then we're honoring King. And so finding those ways to observe King Day that's in that tradition and in that spirit and is is hearing this assessment of his day and looking to the assessment of our day, but then organizing around it and coming together with those who want to, who want to, are willing to go there with us on, on making real the, the radical, radical revolution of values and transformation of society. Y'all are spitting stray facts here and God, I wish we had more time because um, we can just keep going on and on, but I know there's going to be so many folks listening that are going to want to, you know, continue to follow what you guys have to say, but um, given the time, I guess I can close um, just, you know, reflecting on even the title of um, our Kairos time tonight's, you know, thinking about we shall see what will become of his dreams. Uh, let's think, you know, let's do some like imagining and use this as like a time of like a call to action. Like, where do we go from here? Like, you know, honoring the legacy of King, thinking about, you know, his politics and what he called for, you know. I love what you said, you know, this it's era of revolution that we're in right now. Like, how do we answer that call to participate in this revolution and build this campaign from the bottom? What, what, do, what do we need to do? Where do we go from here? Up over my head I see changes in the air Up over my head I see changes in the air And I really do Up over my head 